How many of you have ever um, looked at a horoscope? A horoscope. That's one of those things you look at and you can see horror in it. You ever seen one of those? You go to a movie theater. Um, all of us have, whether intentionally or perhaps maybe just for the fun of it. Uh, but I think everyone in here understands and appreciates the fact that uh, horoscopes don't mean anything. There's no way in the world that somebody can look at the position of the, of the moon and the planets and the stars and decide what your future is going to be. Even though there are people who believe that and people who uh, make money off of it. Well, what's interesting, Paul deals with this kind of thing in the book of Colossians. Um, how many people have ever heard anybody putting forth the idea that um, eating a certain diet will make you more spiritual. You heard that, Steve? Yeah, you, there, you know, you have to look for them, but there are books in, in the library and also at Barnes & Noble and other places that promote a better spiritual life through better eating. That if you eat certain things, that it will heighten your spirituality. Well, Janice is not even here and she's dropping stuff. How does that work? <laughs> Um, Paul deals with that particular idea also in the book of Colossians. Um, how many people heard of something that took place over in Waco, Texas in March of 1993? Anybody know what I'm talking about? A group called the what? Branch Davidians. Now what were they, Roger? They were a religious sect that we normally call by another four-letter word. Cult. All right. They like to collect guns. They sure did, and it ended up costing them their lives because of, you know not because they collected guns, but because they wouldn't uh, listen to the law. Well, basically, the main thing that the Apostle Paul deals with in the book of Colossians is probably more than likely about a cult that started in the church at Colossae. There's a lot of discussion uh, in commentaries and among religious scholars about exactly what was going on in uh, Colossae. Uh, we'll spend some more time talking about that, but most people just simply refer to it as the Colossian heresy. Okay, uh, There was some major, major heresy happening in the church at uh, Colossae, and it resembled a cult. Evidently, some type of cult or something very similar to it had been developing in the church there. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever studied cults. Um, I did when I was in school, um, and I think we've had a few classes on it here. But there's some main components of a cult. Uh, somebody that thinks they know some things about cults, uh, give me some components of a cult. All right, Karen, I saw your hand first. All right, a leader that's very charismatic. And uh, we don't know of anybody at the church at Colossae that was that way, uh, but we know of some other things that, that lead us to believe there had to be some kind of false teacher or false teachers who were leading the people astray, and to lead them astray, they had to be very powerful or very charismatic. All right, what were you going to say, Frankie? All right, and uh, this common belief is, hey, Flo, is different from what we might call regular Bible beliefs. Uh, usually it's um, 
some kind of a, a blending of religious views. Uh, most cults um, believe that you need something more than just the Bible. The Bible's okay. You can use the Bible, but you need an addition to it in order to make it work right. Um, not to um, defame some of our religious neighbors, but uh, the one that comes to mind immediately when I think about that idea is, uh, is the Mormons. The Mormons aren't satisfied with just the Bible. They have to have um, the Book of Mormon. They have to have the Pearl of good pro- a big, uh, Great Price. They have to have the Doctrines and Commandments. Um, if a Mormon comes to your door, he really doesn't want to discuss with you the Bible. He wants to discuss the Book of Mormon. Uh, because, as they say, it's another testament of Jesus Christ. The one testament's not enough. But that's a characteristic of a cult, and that's the reason why some people call the Mormon church a cult. Yes. <clears throat> and, and that's a very big characteristic of a cult in that they have strict control of your lives. Uh, they deal uh, with you uh, using some type of moral restraint, sometimes even physical restraint. But they... Some people use the term brainwashing, but it's not so much brainwashing as, as they take total control of your life and you have no choice in things. Um, many years ago in the church, there was a movement that started out as the Crossroads Movement and later became known as the International Church of Christ, which is still in existence. But um, their big thing was that you had to pick a prayer partner and that prayer partner basically ruled your life. You had to talk to them about everything. And you couldn't spend money unless you talked to them. You couldn't get married or date someone unless you talked to them. Everything had to go through your prayer partner. And that's how that control worked. But of all the things that you have mentioned, when it comes to quote-unquote Christian, hey, come on in. When it comes into Christian cults, what's the number one significant thing when it comes to a religious cult that's Christian that is always the case that makes it a cult. What's the number one identifying thing? It has a false view of Jesus Christ. It makes him into something either more or less than what the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is. And that's one of the main things that was a part of the situation there in Colossae and uh, why Paul wrote this particular letter. Uh, Colossae is a city that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, if it was still around, you would go visit it at the, in, in present-day Turkey. Um, most people believe that it was called Colossae uh, because it's named after Colossus. And uh, Colossus is a name for a big statue. And there's a lot of stones in that part of the country that could be stacked upon one another. And so they believe that, the, um, that it was named after some big, huge uh, statue that was in that area that was probably of some pagan god. All that exists of the city now is just a mound. There's a mound that remains where the city used to be. And for some reason, the mound has never been excavated. I don't know why nobody's ever had any interest in it. But there is a small mound there that represents evidently the ruins of the city. And I guess if somebody dug down through that mound, they would find artifacts and whatnot. But Colossae was such an unimportant city, especially by the time that Paul wrote this letter, uh, that um, people really didn't want to know a whole lot about it. Uh, That's what's interesting about this particular book. It is written to a church that Paul had never, ever been to before. 
Uh, it was a church that Paul didn't establish on his missionary journey. It was a church that was in a tea tiny little town. But yet, the church is the church. And if there was something that was destroying the church, then Paul wanted to put an end to it. And so he thought it was very important that he uh, write to this church and try to put an end to uh, what was known as the Colossian heresy, whatever it was that was destroying that particular church there. Um, it's interesting, if you go through the book of Acts, this town and this church is never, ever mentioned once. But yet we have a whole epistle that's written to this particular church. And I think, once again, that emphasizes the fact that regardless of the size of the church, God thinks the church is important. And if there's a problem in a church, no matter how small it is and how small the town is, even an apostle of Jesus Christ thinks it's something worth straightening out. And so, just throw this out here, because this is uh, conjecture, because nobody knows for sure, but how do you think the church at Colossae started if um, the Apostle Paul never visited there? There's no record of it in the book of Acts, but yet we have a whole epistle that goes to it. And why did, why did Paul write to it from prison of all places? All right. Good, good. Both of y'all. Epaphras. Tell us about Epaphras. Tell us something about Epaphras. <clears throat> okay. Okay. Epaphras was either the preacher there at Colossae, we don't know for sure, or he was just a, a very strong member there. But as Michael says, Epaphras comes to, to Rome and becomes a fellow prisoner with Paul. And by that, he came to aid Paul and decided to stay there with him in prison to help him. And he tells him about the church at Colossae and what's going on there. He tells them, as we're going to see in this letter, the good things that are happening, and he's also going to tell them about the bad things that are happening there. And so Paul feels the necessity to write this particular book. Yes, Karen? In the sense that he stayed with Paul. I don't know if he was actually arrested or not, but he made the decision to stay with him like Timothy stayed with Paul. Um, go, go ahead. Right, yeah, they, they chose to be prisoners with Paul is the idea. Um, but here's the thing that's very interesting. Now, keep in mind, this is around 63 or 64 uh, uh, A.D., and Paul's in prison, and you remember why he was in prison? He was waiting to appeal to Caesar. And while he's there, he, he of course, is you know, preaching and trying to convert others. And we had already looked at the book of Philippians uh, while he was in prison because of the fact that it was the Philippian church that sent him so much aid and comfort while he was in prison. He wrote this beautiful letter to them, a letter of love about how much he appreciated them. But also he was, wrote another letter, the book of Ephesians, which we'll talk about later while he was in there. But right before I finished teaching this particular class, we were looking at the book of Philemon. And what is the connection now with Paul in prison, Philemon, and the book of Colossians? This is what makes it interesting. Exactly right. The church at Colossae met in Philemon's house. This very person that Paul wrote to about the runaway slave Onesimus. And so we have a connection with the church at Colossae. There evidently was some good strong members there. In fact, you know, in the book of Philemon, Paul talks about uh, Philemon's wife and also his son, and his son may have been a preacher there in the church at, at uh, Colossae. And Philemon may have been an elder at the church at Colossae. So there are some tie-ins here that are very important. And it shows you 
Why Paul wanted to get things straightened out at the church at Colossae and why he felt the necessity to write to a church that he'd never even set out on. It, it might have. Of course, another question that comes up is, you mentioned that Epaphras started the church in Colossae. Well, how did he become a Christian to start a church in Colossae? He had to, had to start somewhere. Well, we don't know. He, if, he, if, he didn't, if uh, Paul and his relationship didn't start until he got to prison, Ephesus is only 100 miles from, Coloss- uh, from the city of Colossae. And it may have been, some people think, that um, Epaphras came from Ephesus. He was converted by Paul in Ephesus and then went 100 miles away to start a congregation, a congregation in the city of Colossae. Um, you know, he learned by Paul, Paul's example of establishing churches, so he went and established a church. There's also some people who believe that the group of people that uh, were there on the day of Pentecost, there was, it's named in Acts chapter 2 that there was Jews from the region of Phrygia, and that's where Colossae is. And it may be that there were Jews that left after the day of Pentecost and went back to this area and established the church there on their own. Like I said, that's all conjecture. We don't know exactly what happened, but it is interesting to think about the connections that are here in this particular book. It's interesting, Paul also wrote the book of of Ephesians while he's in prison, and he spends the majority of his time in the book of Ephesians talking about how that the church is the body of Christ, Uh, whereas that in the book of Colossians, he spends the majority of his time almost talking about some of the same things, but emphasizes that Christ is the head of the body. And so there's that tie in there. So these, all four of these prison epistles have a connection. They're just, you know, they're just not books thrown out there. They uh, kind of interweave and, and wove, wove together. Uh, while Paul was in prison, it kind of gives you an idea of some of the things that he's talk, talking about. But everything that he knew about the situation in, in Colossae evidently came from Epaphras. And he's going to, of course, mention that in this book right here that we're going to be looking at in just a moment. But let's spend some time before we actually get into the text making sure we understand exactly what Paul was dealing with, we think. There's a lot of discussion about whether or not this was pure Gnosticism or not, but most scholars think that the thing that Paul was dealing with was the infancy of Gnosticism. Now, you may have heard preachers talk about that before, but anybody know what Gnosticism is? And why do we call it Gnosticism when it starts with a G? Well, there's angel worship involved. Yep, that's certainly one aspect of it. Judaism was a part of it. Basically, Gnosticism was a blending of Jewish thought, Greek philosophy thought, and paganism. Okay? The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word uh, gnos, which means to know. Okay, means to know. And so Gnosticism is a religion of knowing, which in and of itself doesn't sound like that bad of a deal. I mean, if you're going to be a Christian, it needs to be a religion of knowing. You don't blindly follow something, you need to know. But the problem with Gnosticism is that they believed that they had a very special type of knowledge that nobody else had. Uh, These were Christians but they thought of themselves as superior Christians because they knew things that other Christians didn't know. In fact, they knew things that, that 
you needed to talk to them about because if you did not talk to them about it, then there's no way in the world you were going to have salvation. Because they were the special ones. They were the knowing ones. And therefore, um, they were able to control the church, not only here, but in other churches, um, that Paul had to deal with this particular idea. But it's the idea that if you want to find out what the answer to something is, if you want to find out how, whether or not you should do something or not, uh, before you made any decision, you needed to come to these leaders because only they had the special knowledge, which is a sign of a cult. You know, if you have to go to someone to get permission or to know anything uh, because they're the only ones that know, then they've got control of your lives. So they had that particular thing going on. They also um, had this one major premise that caused the whole chain of their thoughts to come together. And it was based on the idea that um, we all have to deal with, but it started with this particular idea. Why is there evil in the world if God is so good? And we've talked about that before in classes. You've heard sermons talked about that. Uh, that's a problem that the atheistic world tries to throw out at us. You know, if God's so good, why is there so much trouble in the world? Why is there even a world? Why in the world would a God who is so good create a world that's so bad? Well, they were trying to deal with that particular issue, but instead of just going to the Bible and dealing with it, they started saying, well, let's look at not only what the Bible says, but let's look what um, the Greek philosophers say about it. Let's look at what the pagans say about it. And in the process of all this synchronism of, of religious thought and whatnot, they started formulating some ideas, and they came up with this particular idea, and this is a key tenet of Gnosticism, that all matter, all matter, all flesh, anything that's material, is evil. All things that are spiritual, and the spirit realm is good. Everything that is physical is evil and always will be evil. Everything in the spiritual is good, is absolutely good, and will always be good. But that being the case then, they formulated the next idea, that if this was totally evil and this was totally good, that there's no way in the world these two could ever come in contact with each other. The physical could never come in contact with the spiritual. Now, that begins to open the door to all kinds of problems. And in order to justify those problems, the leaders of this particular religion or cult became, started coming up with all kinds of ideas. Um, first of all, if God is a spirit, and spirit is absolutely good, which I agree, God is absolutely good, and matter or physical is absolutely evil, What's the first thing that would be the result? All right. Christ cannot come down the way that he could. Why? Absolutely. And so do we know how the Gnostics settled that particular issue? They said that Christ did not come to this earth in a physical form. That he was, some writers said, a phantom. Sometimes Some writers said that he was just a, uh, a presence that people could see, but yet he really wasn't here, that he could walk in sand but not leave a footprint and that kind of thing, or he would touch you, but yet you'd feel, why does I do that just occasionally? 
Um, it must be a bad bearing or a bad belt or something. But anyway, but he could touch you and you would not feel uh, warmth and that kind of thing. That's kind of the, some of the stories that the Gnostics would tell. But it had to be that way. There's no way possible that Jesus Christ could have had any type of humanity because that violates the idea that all physical is evil and all spiritual is good. It just won't work. It won't mix. And therefore, there's no way in the world that Jesus Christ could have came here and actually became a man. He had to stay a spirit. That's the only way that he was good. If he was physical at all, boom, he couldn't be God and he couldn't be a spirit anymore. Now, that causes another problem. If Jesus really wasn't a physical being here on this earth, really wasn't humanity, what, what does that mess up? He didn't die for our sins. Well, if he didn't die for our sins, what are we going to do about our salvation? Well, the Gnostics have come up with some ideas. It's, it's basically, uh, you had to uh, climb rungs of a ladder. Uh, they didn't use the term ladder, but I mean there's different levels you had to reach as you approach salvation. Um, I don't know if any of y'all happen to see the show because it's very obscure and very few people have ever seen it. But there's a show on Hulu called The Path. It's about a cult. And you've seen it? I thought I saw Steve shaking his head. But anyway, but in The Path, they have to climb the ladder to reach different levels of spirituality in this cult. And when I saw that, it reminded me of Gnosticism because Gnosticism has the idea that baptism is not good enough because baptism obviously can't be good enough because Jesus Christ didn't die for your sins. If he didn't die for your sins, there's no blood to wash you clean, so there has to be something else. So they developed a series of levels that involved rituals and rites and mystical things that as you attain these different levels as they were set forth by the uh, leaders, then you reached higher and higher planes of salvation and got to be less and less physical in a sense, and move toward the spiritual, which wasn't so much salvation, but the releasing of the physical from your body so you could be totally spirit, and then you'd be good and you'd be with God. Okay? Yes? It's a form of dualism. Dose, dose, yeah, there's several different forms of, of, of Gnosticism, and you can go back and look at early church history and find a lot of different ones. But, but this is kind of, I'm just going to give you the blanket of it. And even here in Colossae, we're not sure if this was pure Gnosticism, but some of the things that Paul talks about makes you certainly think about it. In fact, one of the biggest arguments against this being Gnosticism is that um, secular writers didn't start writing about Gnosticism until many years later. But yet this has all the uh, hallmarks of it, and therefore most people think that it is at least some form of Gnosticism. Well, if, if the matter is completely evil... And God or spirit is completely good, and they can't have in contact with each other. We saw what that does to Jesus Christ, which changes him, which is a part of what a cult does. It changes Jesus Christ. In fact, I mentioned the Mormons a few months ago. They make Jesus a lesser God than God the Father. Um, I know that Michael's had a lot of discussion with Jehovah's Witnesses. They make Jesus into something else. That's why some people call the Jehovah's Witnesses a cult. But here's another problem you run into. If matter is totally evil and God is totally good, what's another problem that just should stare at you very big? All right? Because you're totally evil. And, of course, that's why the Gnostics came up with these different levels to get you there. But there's one that's obvious that everybody's missing. Think about it for, more, for a minute. Matter, physical, is totally evil. 
But God is totally good. The two can't... What? All right, there you go. How in the world could something that is totally good, absolutely good, and have no contact with that which is totally evil and always will be evil, the material world, how in the world did God create such a thing? Well, the way that the Gnostics got around that is that they um, came up with this idea that there was a spiraling of lesser gods until they finally got down to a lesser god that was inferior to the point that they could create the world. And depending on which form of Gnosticism you followed, you'd have a God, then you have a lesser God, and you have a lesser God, and you have a lesser God, until you got to the point that this lesser God was so far away from the, the spiritual, he could become more physical in order to create the world. I know it doesn't make sense, because you still would have to have a blending there, because somewhere down the line, something that was good had to become evil. But that's why the angels are involved. Okay? This is how you thought, well, why in the world they start worshiping angels and get so involved with angels? Well, the angels were the intermediators between God and these lesser gods and the heavenly bodies. And since they were the intermediators, you wanted to make sure that they were happy. You wanted to make sure that they were on your side if they were going to try to climb the, the, up through the rungs of the inferior gods to get to the true and living God. Uh, so you wanted to keep them happy. So the process began where they would start doing favors for the angels, worshiping them, making sacrifices to them, doing things for them, okay? And that's why you think, well, why in the world they, why Gnostics who had crazy views anyway, how in the world they get the angels involved? Well, that's the reason why. They started saying that the heavenly bodies and uh, these angels all worked together to help get them to the God because they were in between because there was several different levels that went down. All right. It's a mixture of Greek theology. That's what I'm saying. They had levels in there. Remember, it's a mixture. Gnosticism is a mixture of Christianity, Jewish thought, Greek philosophy, and paganism. And paganism is basically Greek mythology. But yet, in the early church, it was very prevalent for some reason. Not just in Colossae, but in other places. Okay? But here's another problem that you run into. And this is more of the Greek idea that really developed even more later on. But if your body is totally evil, something's got to be done about that. You've got to figure out a way to stop the body from being so evil all the time. And so, what'd they do, Michael? They did anything they could think of to, to, to help destroy the body. Um, they followed all kinds of strict reg regiments and diet and whatnot. And that's how they started bringing in the Jewish concept of the thing. They started off first with dietary laws, but they also liked the idea of the pomp and circumstance of the Levitical priesthood. So they incorporated the dietary laws, but yet stretched them even further, saying, well, you can't eat this on this particular day, and you can only eat this much, and just to throw in a good measure, you should beat yourself on the back ten times too. It's the idea of doing everything you could hurt and to, to destroy this body because this body was totally evil and it deserved to be st uh, destroyed and the effort that you try to suppress as much as possible so that maybe somehow or another you can be released from this body. Crazy stuff, but that's what was going on. And it's amazing the crazy stuff that people will fall for and believe. I mean, think about Jim Jones. 
very fact that there are people who would take their lives because of some one man. Or those people that died at the Davidian Branch compound there in Waco, Texas. Uh, I forget the name of the particular group, but remember the people who wore the purple jumpsuits and climbed to the top bunk of their bunks and drank poisons and died? Well, yeah, it was similar to Star Trek, but what was it? I don't remember that, but it was... Yeah, the comet was coming, and their leader talked them into all getting into a bunk bed and putting on a jumpsuit and drinking poison. They're waiting for them to go to outer space. So it's amazing what people can, will fall for. And evidently, when Epaphras got to prison and started talking to Paul, he says, Paul, you won't believe this stuff. You won't believe the stuff that's happening at Colossae. And, and, Colossae, and Paul would say, even with, with Articus there, the preacher, and he says, yeah, he's fighting it tooth and nail, but he can't seem to get a hold of it. Even with Philemon there, it was one of the elders, yeah, we can't, we can't, we can't stop it. It's spreading through the church. Something needs to be done. So basically, um, that's why Paul wrote this particular letter, is to deal with this particular problem. Um, and as we go through the book of Colossians, we're going to discover that um, there are a lot of things that you, if you read between the lines, you'll discover that uh, that's what he's addressing, a certain aspect of all this. So let's go ahead and get into um, the book, and um, we're going to start uh, looking at the first couple of verses of chapter 1, but before we do, I want to make sure that uh, we got a good handle on what he's addressing here. All righty, very good. Well, Paul starts this letter like he starts all of his letters because it is the way that uh, letters were written back then, and it begins with what we call a prescript, okay? You've heard of postscripts. Well, here's a prescript. We answer our letters, or we write our letters with postscripts. And what is a postscript of the letter in our letter? We usually say something very nice, and at the very end of the letter we say who we are which as we talked about in the other classes on the epistles, that really doesn't make a lot of sense. Because in order for a person to know who's writing to them, what's the first thing they have to do? Look at the bottom of the letter. Well, who's this from? Oh, okay, well, let's see what they have to say now. But in Roman and Greek culture, they had what they called prescripts, where the very, usually the very first word written on the letter was the person who wrote it. So immediately you knew who was writing the letter. Okay? And... Usually another part of it is they would have some type of greeting. Uh, we have greetings at the end of our letter like, you know, take care or sincerely as Karen said or whatever. But they would have prescripts and so they would tell the person's name and then they would have some type of greeting. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here and this is the formula that he follows uh, in his other letters. So this is very common. And I think uh, we all know who uh, Paul is. Um, one thing I thought of as I was looking at this, um, thinking, I don't know if we've ever discussed in class why Paul's name is Paul here instead of Saul. Why did he go from being Saul on the road to Damascus to being Paul that wrote this particular letter here? Why is there a name change? Paul, Saul is the Hebrew name, which makes sense. You know a lot of Jewish people named Saul. Yeah, but he was Saul of Tarsus, that's his Hebrew name, and Paul is, was his Roman name, or Greek name, but it's a Roman name is what it is. Uh, but they, don't, they don't, aren't the same name, though. You know, they sound alike, they're not the same name. 
Um, Saul in Hebrew means answered of God or, or God sends answer, different interpretations of what it means. But the word Paul or Paulus in Roman means little. So the names don't correspond at all. So the question comes up, that's kind of, you know, I thought it might take a few moments to talk about because we never talked about it. This won't be on the test though, Scott, so don't worry. But why the name change from Saul to Paul? Maybe that's what it was. That he thought, well, if I tell people uh, my name is Saul and hand them my car, they might shut the door on me. But if they tell me Paul, it'll take them a while to figure out who I am. Maybe so. Uh, that for three years, he was in the wilderness of, of, of Arabia. Sure was. Yes, ma'am. And it may be. It may be that he is um, making sure that he drops his Jewish connection with his family and the prestige that goes along with it. I think I saw Roger at least point at you, or maybe you, you were asking a question. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, most certainly they were. They were chasing him everywhere he went. Yes, Jeff. Then I'll come to Michael. And, and that may have had, had some, something to do with it. Um, I remember when I was in school, well, not in school, when I was a younger person, I heard a preacher one time talk about how that in the same way that Abram changed his name to Abraham and Sarah changed her name to Sarah, uh, this is what happened with Paul. He was Saul, but there was the major change in his life, he changed his name like that. Well, that might be the case, but you've got a problem in the fact that um, if he's going to change his name after he's converted, he didn't change his name for 12 years. For 12 years, he was Saul after he became a Christian. So that's, that's, that's really not a, you know, it might be part of it, but for 12 years, he didn't change his name because the first time uh, Luke mentions him changing his name is after he's been a Christian for a long time. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. What are you going to say, Mike? All right, all right. He, he says, I'm the chief of sinners, so I'm a little man. I always thought Zacchaeus was a wee little man, but Paul was. All right, here's what's interesting. The very first time that Paul, or Saul is called Paul, is in Acts chapter 13. I think it's verse 9. It's 13, 13? Oh, it's 13, 13. It's not verse 9? What's verse 9 say? Oh, okay. Yeah, what is it? Read the first part, of the very first part of the verse. Okay. Oh, you know, they keep, you know, they, the point is, that's the very first time after Paul was converted that he goes by the name Paul that we have record of. And what's interesting about that is when it happened, when Paul began his very first missionary journey. Who was his missionary journey to? It was to the Greeks. All right? It was very common in that day and age, especially if you were in a situation like Paul was, who was a Jew, but he was also a Roman citizen, to have two names at birth. His Hebrew name, because of his family tradition, was Saul. His Roman name because of the fact that he was a Roman citizen, was Paul. And so now he's beginning a missionary journey into a Greek world where the emphasis is not going to be on his Judaism, but on Christianity. Notice what happens. That's when his name changes. In the same way that with um, Timothy, 
He decided to circumcise him, but with Silas, he didn't. It was because of the cultural problems that they were running into with Timothy being, uh, having a, a Jewish ancestor and not being circumcised. Paul thought it would inhibit his preaching, but with Silas, he didn't do it because Silas wasn't a Jew. And if he did with Silas, then that would mean he's trying to enforce Judaism on Silas. One was for the purpose of, of expediency, and evidently Paul right here changed his name from Saul because he wanted to emphasize his Greek roots, not his Jewish roots. I think I saw a hand over here somewhere. Fred, do you have a question? you? Okay. Um, does that make sense to everybody? I don't know if anybody's ever thought about that before, but, you know, uh, if I started changing my name suddenly, y'all probably ask questions why I want to change my name, you know. 